You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have John Fortes on the show. John founded the Fortes Company, which partners with working professionals like myself seeking to invest in multifamily apartments. He's used the experience to help invest over $70 million in multifamily investments and helped really families secure their financial future and preserve their wealth and compound investment. Beyond that, John is also the host of the Passive Investor Show, and he calls himself a passive investor consultant, which I can't wait to dig more into that, but which is his show has become one of the most popular uh, real estate shows on iTunes. So go check it out for sure. But with that, John, welcome to the show, man. Uh, Thank you for having me, man. Anybody that's listening, please do yourself a favor and go give this man a five-star rating, please. It helps podcasters and he's just trying to build it up like everybody else. And it really helps. I appreciate you having me here. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So John, you might be newer to the show. So we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? I am vanilla, but it's about the toppings. That's like, <laughs> I like the toppings. So I like vanilla and man, the toppings is anything candy related, right? So if it's gummies, jimmies to me, right? And there's only one set of jimmies and it's chocolate jimmies. And what, what are jimmies? What are jimmies? I've never uh, even heard of that. Jimmies are sprinkles. We call them jimmies. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the rainbow ones don't exist. It's chocolate or nothing. Yeah. And so when you say from up there, you mean Georgia, right? Like the Northern States. <laughs> uh, well, I'm born and raised from South of Boston in a town, in a city called uh, Brockton, Massachusetts. So it's just, you know, I call soda and other people call it pop, right? Yeah. So it's just, you know, certain things that I grew up Colin things. Yep. Yep. A Southerner get a vocabulary lesson over here. So I appreciate that. So tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do? I uh, syndicate commercial apartment complexes. And when you come into the space and if you understand syndication, what does that mean? It's basically a pooling of capital to JV and opportunity. What is a JV? A joint venture structure between a group of people. You're pooling your capital and you're going to buy this building as a business. So there's a vetting process that goes into it, making sure it's cash flowing because we're never buying anything to one, develop, two, totally, totally repurposed from zero income, like abandoned buildings or anything. We're buying existing buildings that are undermanaged, just need some maintenance and consistently kick off cash flow. So that's what we focus on here. And we do that through one-to-one syndications. We do that through creating a fund that allows us to go and take down a ton of opportunities all at once. That's awesome. That's awesome. So doing the big stuff, I'm assuming that's not where you started. So where did your real estate journey begin? Tell us about your first deal. Yeah. So I am a basketball referee and how it happened. When I started refereeing, I needed availability. So my availability became my biggest asset as I was exploring my career to go to a high level NCAA division one. So to get there, being available, I need to figure out how to create some cash flow because, you know, doing IT all the time, you might be doing remote things, but you need to, you know, sometimes be present. So I, I started looking at it, started looking at the stock market, reviewing things, just trying to figure out money, right? How does money work? And, you know, growing up, it wasn't really told to me, but or explained to me. 
So I went down this rabbit hole of understanding uh, stocks, but I couldn't really grasp it because I couldn't control it completely. Then when I came across real estate and then understanding the cash flow, and now I'm seeing the benefits of cash flow coming back to me. Had I known I could participate in the beginning, I was a little naive or whatever it is, as far as participating just in syndications, I would have just did that till I got to a certain point. And then eventually becoming a professional limited partner in, in uh, certain opportunities consistent to map multifamily and maybe even had ventured out into other types of real estate, commercial real estate at that level. So I needed cash flow. So I learned real estate, purchased a single family home. In the middle of closing that, I said, uh, me and my wife had a discussion. We said, let's scale this thing and see how we can go. We purchased some education in real estate through Jake and Gino's community, asked a ton of questions, learned really quick. And then next thing you know, I'm part of a 62 unit, then a 41 syndication, then a 528 unit syndication, and then 167 unit syndication. So just a lot of projects started coming my way as I started to scale my business. I started with one single family home that we said, eventually we're going to get to multifamily and let's just go there now. I love how you went from one unit to education to like 800 units in a blink of an eye. Jake and Gino do phenomenal job over there. And I went to the University of Tennessee over in Knoxville where they're based out of. So I see a lot of people come through their community and a lot of people having success. So that's phenomenal here. I want to touch on the fact that you just mentioned stocks versus real estate. So you're the first person that I'm having a conversation with as the amazing short squeeze of 2021 is going on with GMC, GameStock and AMC. Help us understand, like, what did you not like about the stock market that real estate gave you? Here's what the stock market taught me, right? So it taught me to bet on winners. And how do you bet on winners? You're betting on winning CEOs. So similar to when you're vetting a operator in multifamily, you're finding a proven operator that is already gone full cycle. They understand the market. They understand business plans. They understand how to communicate with their investors. So with the stock market, for instance, I'll use Coca-Cola, right? That's been the example I always give. Coca-Cola, if they hired a CEO that was, when he got hired, the people were like, oh my gosh, why they hired this guy or this lady or blah, blah, blah. And their track record isn't so good their stock is going to plummet. But if they hire someone that's proven to have done things in the past, their stock is more inclined to stay the same or consistently grow in the future because they're standing behind that CEO. And that's kind of where that stock market game kind of really shifted for me for real estate because it told me to pick winners, but also pick the people behind those winners. So when you dive closer into those things, but I didn't, to answer your question, I didn't like the fact that I couldn't get the cash flow to me, right? So how do I create the cash flow through real estate really or buying a business? And I wasn't too keen to start in a business at the time. Lo and behold, I started a business. That's the funny part of it. But with that said is the stock market didn't provide me the cash flow that I wanted to receive on a consistent basis without having to get taxed on it by distribution. So real estate allowed me to shield some tax through cost segregations and depreciation uh, deductions, which we'll dive into later, but I'll tell you right now, I can't claim it here in Massachusetts, uh, bonus depreciation. So it's just stuff like that. That's tough. Um, but yeah, that's kind of like my tug of war with that came from where, where can I get cash flow and where can I build something that is going to only snowball into more and more later on. And even though I did have some you know, 401ks and other things that I've migrated over into other accounts of such to invest personally into winning stock. It was the process of the distribution where when I create a withdrawal, do I get hit with it tax-wise? Yeah. It's going to hit me. 
I think you just mentioned two points there, really around the cash flow. So even though stocks do offer some sort of dividend, usually you're looking in the range of one, two, three percent. Maybe you get a high yielding stock like seven or eight percent, but there's probably a reason why it's yielding so much. And that's because there's some risk associated with it. And the second thing you mentioned was really just hiring a good CEO and making sure that you've got a good operator. And I really like that point around multifamily specifically, because, hey, if you are the syndicator in this situation, you're the operator. So you're better betting on yourself. And that's probably one of the best investments you can ever make. And if you're an LP, you can still go out there and find good operators. One of the things that you didn't mention that I think I've heard you talk about, I kind of agree with as well, is just overall, what can be done to a real estate property to appreciate its value and what can be done to a stock to appreciate its value. And I'm assuming most of us don't have an army of Redditors behind our back ready to drive the stock forward. So what is it that you really saw in real estate and the ability to kind of force appreciation there? Well, if I had a bunch of Redditors behind me, I think that would be borderline. Is that inside trader? Yeah, illegal. <laughs> so it's not like the conversation that's going on right now. Yeah. Yeah. But with with real estate, I have my pick of the litter of, like I mentioned, ground up development where I know I'm not going to see anything for a year or two and then boom, big hit and then whatever. Right. But that's assuming that exit is there and, you know, it's the right investment on a ground up development. But with the consistent of cash flow for me was paling. Right. So having the cash flow consistently while renovating certain things on a slow turn process. It's called the value add process, value add strategy. It was more appealing because I was like, okay, I can get this done. I can get to to see cash flow. I don't have to worry about dips of this. And you know, the, it's pretty consistent. And then there's core, the core plus. So the core is basically, you really don't have to do much to it because it's a newer asset. You're not really renovating or anything, but it's kicking off, probably, let's say, you know, 8% returns or maybe 7% because it's a new asset. You're betting on something newer, getting lower returns. But also if there's a core plus where you're doing real, real light, maybe paint, carpeting, maybe floor cleanups or whatever you're doing, that's core plus as far as assets. So there's different levels to this where it's really distressed, uh, ground up, value add, core and then core. Yeah, that's really good because when I first got into real estate, I thought it was all like townhomes, condos and houses. And then everything else was just, I don't know, somebody else's big money, banks and things like that. And the more I get into it, dude, there's everything from multifamily to mobile home parks to self-storage from light rehab work to full-on developments and everything in between. So you really do get to kind of pick your niche on what do you like, what's your risk tolerance, and where do you want to invest? But I want to switch gears. I've heard you talk about the five different ways that uh, you can make money in real estate. And I kind of want to go over those. So for our listeners out there, what are those five different ways? Yeah, that's a great one. It's my favorite, my favorite, favorite thing to talk about. Keith Weinhorn stated it a long time ago, and I just kind of borrowed it from him because it really resonated with me. So a lot of credit goes to Keith Weinhorn. It's not something I created, but it's the five ways is appreciation. One, you buy and you get appreciation. Historically, it's five years. Uh, historically, it's 6% a year. I'm sorry, 6% a year. Uh, and then you got the cash flow. Basically, the cash flow is the rent income minus all exp expenses equals residual income. 
And then the tax benefits, consult with an attorney, but the taxes, tax benefits of this is the mortgage interest deduction, similar to, to your home, right? You probably get that because you understand it a little bit with your home, if you own a home. Uh, then you got the depreciation, which you can do through cost segregation studies, and you can get bonus depreciation depending on the state you live in. Me being in Massachusetts, we don't qualify here for bonus depreciation. Last I checked, right? So what what is bonus depreciation? Just real quick, because I don't think we've had anybody tell us what that is yet. Bonus depreciation is it's just like an added thing on the cost segregation study. I really can't explain it thoroughly, but it's part of the cost segregation study of when they accelerate the devalue of the depreciation of the property. What you're doing is you're taking something that lasts five years and you're taking it all in that one year. So eventually there's going to be too much where there is an added bonus where you can take a little bit more from it but can't do that here. So I really didn't focus on it. If I moved out of state, I'm probably going to be really, you know, mindful about that practice going forward. And then another thing that could be helpful and offsetting is the income generated from the asset. So that helps with the taxes too. So at the end of the year, if an LP receives a K-1, and this is the best part of it. So say you invested a certain amount where let's say you created 8,000 of cash flow. I don't have the numbers correctly off the top of what that investment looked like, but let's say you made 8,000 in cash flow that year and your uh, K-1 shows a $12,000 write-off. You get to write off that 8,000 of cash flow. That remaining 4,000 goes to next year. So that's the best part of it. So um, that's it. That's it right there, I think, is the fact that you can make cash flow and not pay taxes on that cash flow. So essentially, it's a 100% gain in your pocket as opposed to having to pay taxes like you would a normal W 2 job. And don't forget, you get to carry over that remaining to next year, right? So. Uh, you know, what some people do, if they do a few syndications a year, they always have a ton of extra to carry over for the following year, right? So let's say you make one, two, or four investments a year, one per quarter, you know, you get to carry a few, you know, bonus depreciation thing, you know, or um, K-1 tax things over to the following year. So just keep that in mind when you're investing. And then you have the inflation hedge, which is basically my favorite. My favorite is, uh, I believe I'm just trying to beat inflation 1% at a time. So the inflation hedge eats at the value of the power of your savings account if you don't use it, right? So if your money's in the bank, 1%, inflation's eating at it because inflation is about 2% inflation bump every year, right? So if I have a failing investment that nets me 3%, I basically beat inflation, right? If I got 2%, I stayed on par with inflation. All right, my money's still the same value of when I first invested it. But if I start losing to inflation, I might as well just put it in the bank, you know, instead of investing because the value of my money is going to only depreciate because the bank ain't offering me enough to, to, to make sense of keeping it there. So that's my favorite one in the inflation hedge. And that's the five rules. It's the appreciation, cash flow, loan pay down. Oh, I didn't mention the loan pay down. The loan pay down is when the tenants pay the monthly finance debt. So that's part of the five ways you're getting paid. So it's appreciation, cash flow, loan pay down, tax benefits, and inflation hedge. Yeah, I want to double down on that inflation hedge just real quick because 40% of the money in the US economy that has ever been produced has been produced in the past 12 months. And so when you look at it, the normal rate of inflation is about 2% which means that the things that you buy today are going to cost you 2% more tomorrow. The group of peers that I run around with and friends that I have are all like, yeah, I'm getting 1% in a bank account or 0.5% on a bank account. So my money is growing, but they don't realize that you're going to have to pay more for things later. So I love that beat inflation 1% at a time. 
because that's exactly it. You need to know that if you're not making 2% on your money, you're actually losing money in the long term. That's it, man. Uh, 2.5, just to be clear, right? Just to be yeah. safe. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. So I love that. And that really helped me understand why I got into real estate too. I, I still have a very large stock portfolio and not very large. I have a I have a stock portfolio that I monitor and trade in from time to time. I say that real estate is a strategy, not the strategy, um, but that really helped me get why I invested more into real estate is kind of those five reasons right there. So if you've got someone that you're talking to or one of your friends and family that wanted to invest in your syndication and you talk through the five benefits, what are the kind of the three steps or the three ways they can start getting involved in real estate after that? One, I'll give the same advice of when I first went and I saw some financial counseling is build your foundation. And building your foundation is making sure your debt is paid. Whatever lingering debt you have, pay that off. Get that out of the way. Have a good chunk of savings account that you could keep off to the side that is okay with losing against inflation, but it's your emergency fund essentially, right? So if something goes wrong, you have something to, to hold on to or to help, I guess, weather the storm, right? And now as you built your foundation, you've gotten your debt out of the way, you've up, upgraded your financial education, and now you, you, uh, you have an emergency account or funds. Now that excess capital start exploring what kind of investments make sense for you. Is it real estate? Is it stocks? Is it this? I don't ever tell anybody divest out of everything and go 100%. It works for some people. It's uncomfortable for others. Yep. You got to just understand what your risk tolerance is. And I'll give you an idea of that. When me and my wife were looking for our first investment property, I wanted to borrow something which is you buy the asset, you rehab it, you rent it, you refinance and you repeat. You just keep doing that over and over again. Our risk tolerance at that time, even though I wanted that, was turnkey. And that's what we did. We bought a turnkey. It just kind of solidified my tolerance as an investor saying, what's the safer bet for me? So, and, it, and it's basically the just cash flowing asset. Just get me something cash flowing where I don't have to go and monitor the rehab, the reposition, the rent, and then the refinance. I'm not saying I can't do that. I just didn't want to do that because my investment property is states away. I don't have any in Massachusetts. I only have my primary residence. All my investment assets out of state. I know I could manage that type of, I guess, project management from afar. I just didn't want, I didn't want yeah. to add the added job that came with that. So understand where you want to invest comfortably and also be diversified. So Let me are, ask you, my, my first investment was a turnkey as well. Would you recommend that so people can kind of understand the process of how real estate works and all of that? Or was that a good move for you? Or what are your general thoughts there? I'll tell you why it was a great move for me, because it allowed my wife to see how it really worked on an yeah. investment level. She understood it. I I was educating her as I went too. She understood it. But when you see it in action, and I'll give you a good example of that too, as the rates are doing really good, currently refinancing that, and it's opening up so much more cash flow right now because the rates are insane. So, oh, all right, here's another tip too, another pro tip too. If you are buying to keep forever, and this is a tip for my mentor, if you are buying, you know you're going to keep forever, why are you haggling over the cap rate and the price if you know you're going to keep it forever? Because the buy today and the, I guess, the long-term vision of it outweighs what are you trying to haggle over today? So That's right. I'm not saying I don't negotiate or anything. I want to 
it's kind of, it's too fun not to negotiate. I love negotiating. I come to a point where like, all right, I don't need to whip them up on anything. I just try to come to a happy medium of fair value. If they feel like it's fair and I feel like it's fair, we move on. I'm not going to sit there and bring it to the lowest number I can possibly be because it's a game, right? It's not a game. It's just, I do want some value because I do like winning on the buy, meaning I like when the house is appraised for more than what I bought it for. So if I yeah. can get that to win. And it's a good strategy to learn. And like you said, if you have the tolerance and you want to go all in and do other things, do it with baby steps. Yeah. I want to touch on two things from that. One is I have this philosophy in my personal, my professional life. I'm a leader inside of a complex organization. And I always say for you to win, everybody has to win. And nickeling and diming at the very last $100 or $50 for you to win everything only puts a sour taste in that person's mouth. And look, maybe there's seven people on this earth. Maybe you never see them again. Maybe you never work with them again. But I do know that there's a good chance the world is very small, even in real estate, how large it is. The world is very small. There's only very few people. I would rather that person walk away thinking that they at least got something from me if it works for me. So I love negotiating too, but at the end of the day, I just want everybody to win. And if everybody wins, we all win. The second thing is, dude, to your point, rates are so low right now. I've seen things like, let's get creative on, okay, if you're not going to come down on price anymore, can you come up on price and let me roll in the closing cost into my loan and pay that because at the end of the day, that's like another couple dollars on the rent or whatever, on your mortgage or whatever. So there are different ways to kind of get creative in the negotiation phase. And it's not about the bottom dollar, I think. So absolutely. One more thing that I learned was at the rates that they were when I bought that at is not that I was haggling, but I was asking questions. And, and this is what came to light of the asking those questions. If I got it down to X amount of dollars, which was probably, let's say, 5,000 less than what the asking price was. They were like, John, just consider this. Every time you go down $1,000, it's about $10 on the monthly bill. So right. that's all you're negotiating. I'm like, oh, all right. So it's just yeah. a difference of $10. I don't know if that still holds true as rates go up and down, but at that time, that's what it wasn't. That's kind of like how I look at it too. Like, is it the, is it worth the $10,000? $10. Maybe it is, maybe it is. Yep. So have you renegotiated the rate on that price, that property? Have you refinanced yeah, it? Yeah, I'm doing yeah. it right now. <laughs> yeah, it's so crazy, right? Yeah, it's opening it up. That's why I said it, it's opening it up the cash flow. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you taking any money out of that too? Because I'm sure it's appreciated in Florida. Nope. We're not taking anything out. We're just doing a rate swap. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Any years or anything? Just straight rates? No, because it's a long term. So yeah. just keep it at 30 and refresh it and it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Rolling all the, all the, uh, like you said, rolling all the closing costs. Closing costs. So it's yeah. no cash out, nothing. Yep. Yep. So you've got somebody that wants to get into real estate. I know one of the things that you talked about was building confidence. So getting that confidence and you yourself went through some financial education through Jake and Gino. How would you recommend people go build their confidence in, in real estate to make sure that they are at the risk level that they want to be at? Yeah, that's that's one of my like core competencies where you have to build confidence into anything before you actually do it. And the confidence is what gets you to do it over and over and over again, right? So uh, the investor confidence confidence is basically understanding the concepts of real estate. And how I did that was I learned through my house as me and my wife identified our house. We bought a foreclosed home and we've renovated and fixed it and saw the appreciation just, oh my gosh, it's it's insane. Yeah. 
what it's done over the years. And we didn't buy it in 2013 or 08 after the crash. We bought ours. No, we did (laughs) in 2011. I'm sorry. So yeah, we didn't buy it after 08, but like a couple of years after, I mean, we got a good value for it. And it's been insane. What a ride it's been so far, right? So that's our primary home. But understanding the the concepts of real estate, and this works with anything that you're going to invest in. Understand the the concepts of anything you're going to go in. You're going to study Warren Buffett and then be the next stock genius. Study exactly how he went through it. And that's what you got to understand. Understand the basics and the fundamentals. So you can't play basketball without dribbling. You can't, you know, if you don't know how to pivot, you'll travel all over the court, right? So investors usually understand real estate better than they do the stock market because it's, you know, something that they deal with daily in their personal home, unless you that's your job, right? Unless the stock market is your job, you'll understand both. So you'll understand the how appreciation works, cash out refinances, when's the right time to do a rate swap. You'll understand all of those things. Uh, investors love the cycle resiliency, a fancy way of saying how fast the market bounces back from any economic impact. So usually when we're dealing with any dip in the market, real estate bounces back quicker. And 08 is the prime example of that. So, and real estate was the prime factor of that in 08, right? Because of all the the mortgages and stuff like that. So, you know, and it bounced back strong and it came back still going even through the COVID pandemic. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's just been crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I know from a confidence standpoint, one of the things that I tell a lot of people as you're getting involved in real estate is just go run deals. Like first and foremost, get educated. There's some great social media out there. Hopefully if people are listening to this, that we can provide that. But there's also YouTube. You've got your own podcast. There's books out there, bigger pockets, everything like that. Understand the basics of cash flow. So income minus expenses, right? How do you get debt? How do you, what do they need for loans and things like that? And then go run a hundred deals. No one can tell me that if they've done something a hundred times that they're worse at it than when they first started, just like dribbling a basketball or something like that. So confidence is key and confidence really is self-preparation, I think, which is kind of your second point around prepare and explore. Like if somebody's got like a general knowledge on real estate now, how do they prepare and explore? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Just build your own criteria. When you're driving around, figure out what kind of buildings you like, what kind of properties you like. Do you like the way those look? Do you like garden style? Do you like, you know, flat top roofs? I know people that won't buy anything with a flat top roof and it never snows in those areas. So it's just kind of like, you know, understand what you like and what you don't like. Basically, what is your risk tolerance? I know I touched on that earlier. It's just for me, I want singles and doubles. And I don't want anything else. I want singles and doubles and the home runs and triples or whatever happens. Let them happen if it happens. I'm not looking for them. So I'm just looking for just something that's consistent. And having a criteria that lines with that consistency allows me to go and find those types of opportunities. So one of my criteria is it's really hard right now to do, but I want something well, it's not really hard to do, but I just have to look at like more deals than the average person does. So you said run a hundred deals. That's what we're doing. We're doing that. I, I review more deals per quarter than the average in, investor looking to be an invest an LP because that's my job. I'm mm-hmm. trying to find the best deal to put in front of LPs. So having to review more, consistently refine my criteria and find the assets that I feel that are going to be 
proven within those business. Yeah. It sounds like once you have the confidence of really understanding what you're looking for, then you're kind of signaling and zoning in on your specific criteria. Like you said, flat top or garden style or big rise in these specific areas. And you're getting really, really crystal clear on what's a good deal. Where do I want to look? And then from there, I think you talk a little bit about like networking and going out there. How have you done that in the past and how have you been successful? Oh, man. So I've reached out to so many sponsors that I have relationships with, you know, a good amount of people that I understand their business plans. I understand their their underwriting criteria. I understand how they look at assets. I understand how they come across them. So we have so many conversations that allow me to basically know their business plan in and out like they do, because I ask too many questions, almost like I'm genuinely interested in what they're doing. What, what are you looking for there? Has anything like stood out specifically? Yeah. I mean, right now the talk of the rage is who is raising extra capital to provide the prefs? Because if you're looking at a value add opportunity, year one and two is going to be the value add uh, strategy, right? So they're going to be turning units over from year one and two. So if you put investment property opportunity in front of me and it's like 6% year one, 6.5 to seven year two, and then we're back at eight from year three to, you know, eight to nines from year three to, you know, the rest of the holding period, we get to those numbers. That's genuinely a value add strategy where it's low when you're buying it for the first couple of years, but you're getting those cash flows on the 6%, 5%, whatever it is, but you're building it up to where it needs to be. That's straight value add. That's the strategy. That's the process. But there are sponsors out there in the underwriting that they're over-raising to be able to provide the eight pref day one from the value add strategy. Don't call it a value add strategy if that's the point, right? So, you know, I'm looking at who's doing little, maybe they're just being creative. It just hides the operations. That that's, hides the operations. that's super, super interesting. Have you ever read uh, Brian something, Brian Burke, I think's name, uh, The Passive Investor? That's a really good book for people that are looking to get into LPs and things like that, because that's exactly what he talks about is like you are underwriting the sponsor as much as you're underwriting the deal. And one of the deals that I saw the other day, it was like 130 units or something like that. And they had plans to turn 100 units in the first six months. And I was like, look, that seems aggressive to me, right? And they were going to pay a nine pref to your point. So where's that money coming from? I don't really understand that. And so, you know, going through your steps of getting confident and really understand what you're looking for, zoning in on the specific markets so you can know a nine pref isn't right here and a two pref isn't right there, that sort of thing. And then building that network of trusting sponsors can really help you accelerate your real estate journey, I think. Absolutely. And going back to your criteria as an LP, you know, what is your baseline for an investment? What's your strategy? Uh, is it cash on cash? Is it IIR? Is it average annual returns? Is it wealth preservation or yield? So what type of investment are you looking to make for your capital? So for me, it's more wealth preservation. Cash on cash is great. Wealth preservation is first for me than cash on cash. It's not so much. I don't focus entirely on the IIR. Another thing too is right now that you said, what am I looking for? Another thing that's going on in the game too is uh, to finalize the raising the extra for the pref. Is it a return of my capital? Is it return on capital. I, just, I need to decipher between those two. But the final piece to that as well is the average annual return is starting to be the conversation and the IIR is starting to go away. So understand the nuances of when you're dealing with an operator, you'll slowly start to see the IIR start going into the background 
as they start putting the average annual return in the foreground, because the average annual return, if something is an IRR of 15, I'm just throwing these numbers out there loosely, the average annual return jumps up to something around that 18, 20. So that number looks a little bit more appealing to investors than the IRR. Now, the IRR is just simply how fast are you getting your initial investment back? Yeah. So basically, when you factor that in for a five-year hold, I never like putting my capital into opportunities that their business plan is predicated on a refinance in year two or three, because I like to see exactly how the deal is weighted without no refinance. So here's the reason why. Say we get in the middle of COVID like this, or weighing a economic downturn. That refinance strategy goes out the window because... Maybe something happened that caused it. Lenders ain't lending right now. They're putting a halt on it. So don't promise investors anything that is out of your control, even though it's part of your business plan. And I get it. I always say there's a possibility of us refinancing, but it's never the focus of the conversation as far as the investment. Yeah, we'll get you your you know, 60% back in year two or three. Yeah, I love that. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face, aka Mike Tyson, right? And that that's exactly it, man. I had some conversations with some operators here recently. Um, one in particular that comes in my mind, he was under contract with a big bank like a BB&T or a Bank of America, like a bigger bank on a property, and they backed out on him during COVID, right? So if your plan is predicated on refinancing, just understand when we go through economic downturns, the Fed can't print money forever. In normal economic downturns, they kind of shut off the spigot of dollars flowing. And if your whole business plan is predicated on that, then it's going to be a tough ride. So I love to see that people have a plan. I love, though, more that you're thinking, hey, what what does it look like without this? Because I want to know worst case, not best case. Absolutely. I'm always thinking from the investor's point of view. So that's why I always think like the things that I mentioned, I'm always asking because I think I come from an LP focus, even though I'm putting together these deals. And now another pro tip too, is always ask who the lender is, because here's my, another LP strategy that I use when I'm talking to people is if they're working with a consistent lender and it's agency debt. That's what what is agency debt? Real quick, what is it? We all know regular debt is, I can't remember the exact term for it. The regular debt is like banks right now that you're going to, to get a residential loan, right? Agency debt deals with, in the multifamily space, deals with commercial type of assets where they are underwriting the asset. Basically, they take everything you provided them, they throw it out the window and say, all right, yeah, we underwrote it. And we want to give you this debt on this asset. So they become your biggest, basically investor. They're your first investor in the Mm -hmm. deal. So that's why I say, always ask who the lender is. So agency debt is going to underwrite the deal to make sure it's the business model that you're saying. And then they're going to say, all right, we're going to approve you for this, 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 this. Uh, And if the rates are good, they're looking to partner with you to go ahead along in that investment. So the agency debt is offering recourse and non-recourse. Those are are either when you're buying your own home, the bank could come and take take your house and say, yeah, we're going to take all of this and and everything else, whatever, that equates for the, the value of the house, right? Now, agency will say, all right, we'll just take the asset and nothing more. Right. So that's the difference between recourse and non-recourse. And all the agency debt comes with a non-recourse penalty. So they just want the value of the home and they'll go ahead and flip it to someone else or something like that. I mean, value of the apartment complex and they'll go and flip it to someone else for their 
whatever they're in it for. So that's how they'll take it over. And it doesn't hit the sponsors or impact the sponsors where they're coming after their personal items and stuff. So that's, that's another thing where you want to kind of ask why or what agencies they're using. Are they getting agency debt on these? What kind of debt is already on it? Is it bridge to perm? You want to understand that nuance of the deal, or is it just straight permanent rent, permanent lending on it, permanent debt, right? So Mm -hmm. is it just permanent debt? That's just going to be the debt on it for the whole length of the hold and the lenders in it with you 100%. Is it a bridge to debt where the business plan is we're going to, hopefully we're going to refinance out of this in year three because the business plan is, which is not bad. It's not bad. It's just all predicated off the business plan. Is it, you know, so just understand that the lender is the biggest investor and the first investor before the deal is even brought to you. Yep. Yep. So underwrite the lender as much as the deal and as much as the sponsor. So I want to switch into the last little segment of the show here. It's the five same questions that we ask everyone. My first one is what's your favorite book or what is a book that you're reading right now that kind of have read lately that's impacted you? All right. So my favorite book is The Third Door by Alex Benayan. It just tells you- Uh, Man, so he was like a 19 year old who dropped out of college to pursue how successful people do it. Right. So then all of a sudden his curiosity got him interviews with a lot of notable people because of his journey. And he explains the process along the lines of this. So there's three, three doors we always go in. There's we pull up to the club and we wait in line like everybody else. Then we pull up to the club they valet our car and they let us in the VIP. And then there's that third door that not everybody knows where we go through the back door, where we climb through the back window, we get through, we go through the kitchen and we walk through the door and now we're inside the club. It's just figuring out different ways into things. And that was the journey of the book. Love it. The way he explains how he meets certain people, he third door his way into every like new relationship. That's awesome. So that's that's my favorite book. And then the book I just finished was Blackstone founder, Jim uh, mm-hmm. uh, Schwartzman. I just can't yeah. remember his last. Steven. Steven Schwartzman. Yes. Thank mm-hmm. you. I just read that one. That was phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, he's built a $1 trillion company. <laughs> that's insane. So I bet that was good. I actually got my dad that for, uh, for Christmas. I hope he's it's reading phenomenal. that. The second one is, I believe that the person you will become in 10 years is directly correlated with the person that you are today. So what's something that you do every single day? I meditate and I read my Bible. So I'm doing the one year Bible plan mm-hmm. from the app for the second time. I've already done it before. I love it. Uh, It's been like four years since I did it and I just wanted to refresh it. And I meditate every morning, but also I try to work out every day. But if I don't, I do, I try to stick to 200 push-ups and sit-ups every day, no matter what. That's legit. That's legit. I recently got into um, meditation and I used to think it was like so fluffy and kind of foo-foo for me and very soft kind of. And it's a game changer. I mean, to sit there for five to 10 minutes and actually think about one thing or better yet, nothing is really, really hard. And I would encourage people that are listening to the show to take 
five minutes in the morning and just count your breaths and notice if you do that repeatedly, how much clearer you think, how much energized you are. Uh, it's it's game changing. Yeah. Game -changing. One of my favorite meditations is just focusing on my breathing. And if I focus on my breathing, it allows me to clear my mind. Yeah. So that's that's the only reason why I do it. And I noticed that sometimes I do it for 10 minutes every morning. And I started to do I started to do some meditations before I go to sleep. So it's almost it's not every night, but it's 20 minute meditations before bed. Uh, we use the Peloton app and I also use the Insight app. That's yeah. Do you, I've heard of people that meditate have like some of them have a word that they focus on to help them kind of just block out everything. Russell Branson's or Russell um, Brands, for instance, is biscuit like the cookie. Do you do you have one? No, that's that's interesting, though. But I, I if I focus on my breathing, it usually allows me to yep. like focus on like my stomach going out and then coming back in and then trying to feel it inside. That yeah. usually helps because if I focus on a word, it's usually if I am focusing on something, it's more what am I grateful for? Because I'm trying to just cultivate that feeling to catapult my day. 100%. And my, my night. 100%. Love it. We we kind of went on a tangent there, but I love it. <laughs> sorry. Um, what's, sorry. No, I, I caused it. The, the third question is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Whether it's real estate related or life related, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Uh, it was build my foundation and it's kind of the center of everything that any one of us do, right? So if we're going to, you know, for instance, I started becoming a basketball referee. I had to build my foundation with the rule book. I had to have a good understanding of the rules. So build your foundation and keep building off of that. Uh, when you're investing, it's, you know, build your foundation. What's that look like for you and your journey? Building your criteria, build a foundational criteria. Have a foundation for everything you do because that's where it starts. And it's going to be either the reason why it succeeds or the reason why it fails. I love it. I love it. Our fourth one is, what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? My family, my kids and my my wife. How many kids do you have? Two. Two. Yeah. CJ and... How old are they? All right. Depending on when you listen to this, on Valentine's Day, my son will be 11. And on the 9th, my daughter will be seven. Nice. Nice. Do you have a favorite? <laughs> Both. <laughs> All right. You gotta get me. My parents hey. used to run that game on my phone. <laughs> hey man, I'm a, I'm a twin, so I know how to I know how to weasel out that I'm the favorite. Uh, last and final question is: If you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Uh man, it's it's either I'll take Bible characters out of this because I'm always trying to. If it's just people in my life, it's probably my grandfather I never met. If it's someone notable, I don't know, probably just learn more about someone that I was interested in, in high school, maybe Biggie Smalls, just know more about him and what he would have done if he was continuing to go. East Coast. Um, <laughs> and then if it's just kind of someone from the Bible, it's either who doesn't want to talk to Jesus, but if there was someone else be, after that, it would be Solomon because he he wrote Book of Proverbs, if I, if I remember correctly. And being able to write that is just, basically, I want to write things uh, this is what I practice on my social media. I want to write things to my kids and leave them almost like the rules of life to them. And that's what I feel like he did in the book of privates. Bro, that's uh that is a emotional ending right there. I love it all. <laughs> From calling out the best rapper of all time, Biggie Smalls, to Solomon <laughs> to leaving a legacy to your your kids. That's awesome. John, where can people find out more about you if they wanted to reach out? Thank you for having me, Matt. I really had a great time. Thank you. These questions are awesome and also your insights were even more awesome. 
So thank you for having me. You can follow me at, I'm pretty much all over social media, but also if you want to go and check out what I'm doing, go to johnfortes.com and that's F-O-R-T-E-S, johnfortes.com. And that's basically tells you exactly what I'm doing with the multifamily to anything on the podcast. You can find the Passive Investor Show on iTunes and grateful if you tune in. Yeah. Awesome. Well, John, I appreciate the time. We're going to have to have you on back on with vanilla ice cream and tons of toppings because toppings make the ice cream. Toppings, uh, man. There you go. There you go. I appreciate oh, it. But if it, but if it's not just a flavor, it's definitely, I'm getting a hot fudge sundae. There you go. There you go. <laughs> All right, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.